that's the Smiths with a track, The Boy with a Thorn, in his side from the album, The Queen is Dead. I'm David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should, as always, crossing time, space, and genre, with the finest in indie pop. This week, I have another special guest, because I caught up with Ivor Perry from Easter House. So I've got that interview that I'm going to bring, or cut in three or four segments throughout the show, alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But, because... I think it's time to uh, play your favourite and mine. This is Easter House and the track Whistling in the Dark from the album Contenders. Take it away.
you've got to admit, that is probably the best record you've heard all day, if not year. That was Easter House and that's the track whistling in the dark from their 1986 album, Contenders. Hello, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show, and uh, this week's special guest is going to be Ival Perry, because I caught up with him a few months ago, or I don't know, in October, I think, to find out about the band and their musical journey. So I've got that uh, interview that I'm going to break up into three segments uh for easy to uh to you know digest easily because otherwise it's just going to be us talking for 50 minutes even though that is quality chat it could still be too much and um that might just blow your mind anyway a little bit later on i will tell you how you can contact me because we always love your messages but before we hear here at the first part of that interview i think we'll play another track from the album this is the opening track in fact and it's titled out on your own and it does sound really good Yeah! 
And that's the track Out On Your Own, and that was from um, Easter House, and that's from their 1986 album Contenders. And you may think that sounds slightly different. Well, that's because it's been remixed, I think it was a few years ago. So Ivel told me, and it sounds much better than the original. So there you go. If it was just bugging you there, but I still think it sounds incredible. Even 20 years, no, 30 years later. I know, sometimes you have to start using your fingers when you get to my age, when you have to count back the decades, not just the years. Anyway, this is David Eastall. If you want to contact me, we always love your messages. As long as they're kind of um, positive and groovy, um, you can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86show. And uh, if they're not, then... um, Go and see a therapist and uh, have a chat with them about it. Anyway, look, this is the first part of my interview with Ivel, where we were talking, and we did do a lot of talking, about the early years of the band, and this was his answer. Ivel, take it away. Yeah, well, we, obviously uh, we were Manchester uh, guys who obviously liked music a lot, and I had tried to play guitar a few times. Uh, I, I left home when I was really young before I even left school to be honest I went and lived at my friend's house and they were musicians and we made you know these bikers so we had uh, this first two Stooges albums so I heard them before anyone else heard them you know really really early days when they weren't big records or something and I learned a little bit of guitar and I found out that uh, my brother had formed a band completely independent of me because I didn't live at home anymore so I'm about 18, 17, 18. He's, my brother is a year younger than me, Was uh, had a group, and it inspired me in a slight jealous way because I've always been a massive music fan, ridiculous music fan. We used to go out and buy the first public image single, for example, and, and bring it home and play it 20 times, or My, you know, uh, My War by Black Flag or whatever, some record would get you. And um, so we got a band together and we started to make this music, which was sort of a spiky post-punk kind of thing. Basically, um, uh, through a friend, a good of the friends of ours, I used to know Morrissey as a guy who walked around as a local, because he's about four years, three or four years older than me, and he'd be walking around the street in his raincoat looking very enigmatic with his quiff and quite a different fashion style to the way people looked at the time. And and I thought he was a bit of a boring post-punk, Echo and the Bunnymen kind of moping kind of character. And I went around to a friend's house and he played me Hand in Glove before it came out. So she was a friend of his and she had the Hand in Glove single that he'd given her. And I heard that and I went, thinking I had a really bad judgment, it's going to be rubbish. When she put the record on, I went, wow, it's really good. So basically I went the next day and bought it and I played it like 10 times and just got into it. So I went, we're not that radically different. So I went around and knocked on Morris's door, just random cold calling. He knew where I was because he knew I lived five doors from him. But we, because there's a difference in age and that, we weren't friends. And I, you know, I used to hang about with a more working class kind of group of people. And anyway, he had the he had the uh, grace and the kindness to to accept the knock on the door. And I said, I heard your record and it's really good. Would you like to um, hear what we do? And he went, okay. So I gave him the tape. And then we just started chatting. He didn't play it, but he phoned me up a few days later and went, I really like it. Come round. So then he offered us a gig supporting him in Dingwalls, which was their first ever London show on their own name. So they're promoting Hand in Glove and they've been doing some supports. I believe it was the first London gig, you know, under the name The Smiths. And it was at Dingwalls in 1983. So we went down to support them. And um, because we had quite an uncompromising kind of harsh sound at the time, a bit more like Joy Division-y, uh, post-punk, metallic, partly to do with the fact we weren't great players. 
So we had to make the best of what we could do. And we had a drum machine, so we're a bit like the Three Johns, so it's a bit of an industrial sound. We used to put it through a little fuzz box, put it into an amp so it sounded a bit rough. And basically, uh, we did a, we supported them, and we went down like to just incomprehension. Full room at Dingwalls, but not many, much, you know, not much audience feedback. We just looked a bit stunned. The Smith came on and blew blew your mind. So we went back feeling really disappointed. And then six weeks later, I picked up the NME. I was kind of a big NME reader, and I was living in a tower block in Moss Side in Manchester with my partner and, and my first child. <clears throat> so I'm about 21, and basically the uh, we had a review by Jim Scheller. And it, you know, it's a really nice review on its own. We used to be called In Easter House at the time, just for that short period. And um, after that, the phone started ringing, and people started ringing us up. And then we got invited to play the living room a couple of times. You know, the room set up by um, Alan McGee, yes, Creation Records. So we played with with some of our bands, and uh, and got a bit of a buzz on. And then. Um, and then it sort of took off, yeah. We started to get, you know, more indie gigs and started to play a bit. Yes. And then we had record companies after us because it was a hip time. Dave McCulloch wrote about handsome bands and we were linked in with that. So before we even had a record deal, we'd already had people writing about us. Yes. Well, so do you think, it's interesting because Cherry Red Records last year brought out that compilation and they brought out a couple. There was one for Liverpool, which had five CDs, and then Manchester had, it was a seven CD compilation from the sort of yeah. the late yeah, 70s yeah. through to probably the 90s. It was kind of mostly indie pop and probably some, a couple of ravey stuff. Um, but yeah, so Manchester... And a few good records that don't, don't forget the great records by the other forgotten bands like Yago, sort of black electro soul and things that, that were forgotten, but they, I think they're on that compilation. Yeah. They, they were friends of ours, so it wasn't just the indie pop thing. There was, all, you know, there was a different, wider scene, and I also did different things like freak beats. I did techno, and you know, even around them days, I had another kind of musical track. Anyway, it's a divergence, but basically, um, there was a wider movement on that record than just the indie pop. I think. Yeah, well, absolutely. But Manchester, obviously, you know, had so much going on, and and you know, and so to Liverpool, because obviously from Norwich we had you know the Farmers Boys, the Higsons, Serious Drinking, and that was kind of it. Whereas you, you know, looking at that compilation, you're thinking, oh my God, you know, that was an enormous chapter and an amazing body of work. Yeah, so it's so, in, so in, I can't, I, I sort of find it kind of boggling. I mean, obviously it's a bigger place, but at the same time, I mean, the music is incredibly memorable you know and and you know characters like Morrissey and Johnny Marr and then you know you had your Tony Wilsons and people like that you know it just must have been did you feel there was kind of something bubbling away all the time in Manchester no actually it was strange because when we were doing it guitar music wasn't fashionable and um it was starting to be the big new pop you know the pop the Paul Morley thing so it was a lot about new pop and soft cell and electro bands and and uh, Blamange and you know Bronsky beat that kind of thing was wiping out guitar music which was the Smith were obviously a reaction against but we were as well so you felt a bit lonely we couldn't get gigs or anything until I did the Smith thing we just played quite shitty gigs in Manchester and couldn't ever break out of that small you know little club circuit obviously doing that felt like we were claiming something back for guitars you know making Manchester a city that had the heritage that came from the fall and Joy Division and and that kind of thing. Obviously, the Smith added a sort of lyricism and a 
romanticism and a more developed sense of melody to that kind of thing. And they influenced us quite quickly because I realised that that, after playing with them, that they had a speed, a fleet of thought that we didn't have. We were like gothic and doomy. So we then started to change and add a pop kind of element to it, which exploited Andrew's very good singing. And obviously the fact that I could play better. And so there was a direct, obviously, influence in that sense that we decided to pop our sound up a bit and get a bit more, you know, uh, yes. get get over a bit more and stop being so po-faced. Because we're like <laughs> you know, intense young men, you know, dead full of yourself going, oh, God, if you don't get it, you're a fucking idiot. And instead <laughs> we were like, going, maybe the communication is helped by actually playing, you know, tunes that people can fucking home and things. So, so yeah, we, we, did, we, did, we did react to the Smith. I did, certainly with the music, by just going, I've got to, like, step up a gear. And that's the first part of my interview that I had with Eyeball Perry from Easter House and talking about uh, life in Manchester, the Smiths, obviously, and Morrissey. Um, But there's more of that interview to come. But I thought we should have a break and have another track from uh, also the band, and this is from the album Contenders, just for a change. And this is 1969. Yeah. 
thinking what a band that is east house on the track 1969 this is david east the c86 show and this is going to be the second part of my interview with the guitarist ivor perry where we were talking about uh, life in the 80s and the importance of being unemployed for those first few years where you can concentrate 100 percent on the music and that whole groovy time that was the 80s it wasn't just barley cup tvp and Thatcher, Scargill, The Minor Strike. We were also making a lot of music. Anyway, this is Ivel's um, reply to that uh, question about sort of the importance of claiming benefit while being in a band. And this was it. Ivel, take it away. Yeah, that, that totally made it. So I had a job. But when I left, left, uh, I got a job as a trainee management accountant. I packed it in when I was 18 and came home and went on the dole. And I remember knocking on the door with a guy I fly to sh- share the flat with. And I just had a big grin on my face. And he went, what have you done? And I just went, I just fucked my job off. I'm going to be a musician. <laughs> and basically, you could get your rent paid and you could get enough to live on. We lived in a big communal house. So you're right, completely. The dole allowed you that bit of space where you could survive. You know, you weren't living great, but you were surviving and you could, you know, you had your rent paid so you could do what you wanted. So I had a, I had a drum set in in me, I'd lived in one big room in Wally Range, you know, a rented room in Wally Range, the famous line by Morrissey. That's me. I'm living in a rented room in Wally Range. When you walk into me, one bedroom flat, which is a big studio room, there's a drum kit. Marsha, do you know what I mean? We just got a fucking band set up there. So it was, it was all cool. So I used to get up in the morning in my underpants, have a cup of tea and just sit on the drums and play along to studio records the first thing in the morning. That was my workout. Yes. To get me ready for the day. And obviously, you know, apart from being able to claim unemployment and not sort of get too much hassle, there was also uh, the political times as well, because there was the miners strike, there'd been the Falklands, and we were and we were sort of going from the rock against racism to red wedge. So there was that kind of political, you know, the, the word Thatcher got mentioned quite a few times a day, and, and, you know, while drinking barley cup and eating lots of TVP. So did, did that 
I mean, obviously that fueled a lot of kind of um, anger and uh, creativity at the same time. It did, yeah. And Easter House were obviously uh, a political band who were defined by Andrew's very strong ideological um, um, commitment to socialist and left-wing ideas, basically, which I was less, to be honest, was less... Um, you know, I, I, I approached Easter House from the point of music. I went, I want to make a great band that moves people. I've got, you know, big stirring songs and can get people, you know, buzzing. Andrew had an ideological agenda that came in with it. So we always uh, found like Red Wedge and them kind of things to be weak and cowardly and not addressing the real issues in the society at the time. Because obviously the Labour Party, um, the big issue in, in the politics in them days was republicanism and your attitude towards Irish freedom. Basically, it was a thing that was nobody talked about. For example, the SWP or the Redskins, none of people would address that because that was like the limits of the British state, which we went further. And we went, you cannot, in our sense, be in any sense a true internationalist or true socialist if you expect Ireland to be subjugated, because we're Irish, you know, me and my brother, my mum and dad are uh, firstborn Irish. We identify a lot, which obviously I know the Smiths do as well, with that kind of thing, but we, I guess we're more militant, so we sort of didn't like Red Wedge and weren't big fans of Billy Bragg and that. Later on now, I look back, I feel that we were too doctrinaire, but at the time we defined ourselves in opposition to them because we went, we tackle the issues that other people don't tackle. For example, having Bobby Sands on the cover of a record, which sort of shot on our own career because we were getting radio play and we just did it anyway because we just went, it's the right thing to do. Yes, oh God, I'd forgotten Bobby Sands actually. Yes. So that yes, so that got us death threats by the BMP. We were our gig stopped. We had a tour of Ireland and we couldn't go because we were threatened with death by the UDF and loyalist groups and so forth. So yeah, because because most bands, are, um, you know, they have that kind of five year narrative of sort of getting together. And obviously, in your case, you had the big break with the Smiths, but mostly they, you know, make a bit of a sound you know, play in front of their family, friends and anybody else they can emotionally blackmail to see them. But it's like John Peel playing a single and, and then getting a session was kind of big because then that would give a band from, say, Manchester the opportunity to go and play Glasgow or Leeds or Norwich or Brighton. Yes. Bristol. So that was kind yeah. of the big kind of... The, he was the like the gatekeeper of that time and I realised was so important through those other decades. But, you know, that was... In, yeah, in, but the show that became more, more relevant to us because we got played on John Peel, but the show that was more relevant was the one that was before that. Was it, I can't remember what the guy's name was. Was it Skinner or something? Oh, Richard it was Skinner. another show just before John Peel, another show between oh, eight and ten. Kid, oh, Kid Jensen as well. Yeah, yeah, them, that, yeah, and they and they were playing the indie tunes that were breaking through, and so we got played more with them. Like we didn't get a John Peel session, but we got a Skinner or a Jensen's. I can't remember who it was. We got them sessions, a couple of them, and they were the ones that materially affected your your ability to get over. You know what I mean? Obviously, Peel is the icon and obviously it was good to be played on him but it was more it was better for record sales to be played in that 10 8 to 10 slot yes well, and, I think and that's I, what and that's what rough trade knew when london records knew you want to be on that slot that's where you want to be played well i think the the listening you know you might get a gig in say norwich in front of 150 people with john peel in the session but you probably wouldn't get you know 
300, say, you know, you the Manchester Ritz or fill out the Ritz. Yeah, we filled the Ritz, 1,500 people, you know, so. Yes. So how did the narrative of the band go together, because, come together? Because obviously most bands do have this kind of quite sharp and sort of intense five years, which is quite similar to you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's a short, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, basically, um, when we got the break with um, the Smith, we developed into a good live group and started to like i say add a more melodic uh pop oriented sense at least for some of it to try and get over and um and we had a really um good year playing and built up a good you know sort of reputation as being a good live band and, and you could deliver and stuff and we signed to london records badly we offered a really good record deal by blanco e negro which was the label that's signed uh, jesus mary chain yes basically we got talked out of it and we signed a singles deal with london which was our first uh, EP in our own hands with uh, Coming Up For Air on it, um, on a live. Um, and we worked with some fantastic people in there. So we had the guy from The Lightning Seeds, Ian Brody, produced uh, Coming Up For Air. Jimmy Miller from The Rolling Stones, who did all the fabulous albums like Exile and that, did um, One More Time. Uh, Martin Hannett did uh, Man Alive. An endless march. So we worked with some of the, you know, big names. So our first record came out on London, but they actually lost confidence in it and sort of did it on a fake indie kind of promotion. So it didn't do as well as it did. So we ended up um, leaving London Records or getting dropped. I can't remember why. And so straight away, we had immediately after one year, had had one record and suddenly found ourselves in limbo again. We didn't have a record deal. And then um, a few people approached us, but the one that we went with was Rough Trade, obviously, you know, which was the Smith label. But Jeff convinced me and Andrew that it was the right label. And um, so then we went and obviously went with them guys and uh, we started to have some decent success with um, Whist in the Dark and um, Inspiration and started to get, um, didn't have much money, everything was in quite cheap. And then obviously they signed a, a record deal with America with Columbia, where they sold a bunch of the labels like Wooden Tops, and we came along. So by by um, that deal, we then had an outlet into the United States. So then we had an album out there that sold pretty good. It sold about forty thousand of them. Wow. So uh, yeah, so so the Easter House album probably sold sixty thousand. The first Easter album probably sold sixty thousand copies around the world. And this is Contenders, isn't it? Yeah, for an indie album, it, we sold like thirty in England. Yeah. And did you I think do we're number? Number two, or we were number two, or number one in the indie. There were two different indie charts. In one of them, we were number one, and one of them, we were number two. And also, with uh, uh, Whistling, was number one or two, and Inspiration was number five, I think, because we dropped off a little. But yeah, it was a um, you know, rough trade in that sense was a good label for us because they were behind the band, and also it suited the ethos because they were quite down to earth with like trestle tables, it wasn't posh. Everybody was just cracking on, you know, to try and so it had a quite a rough and ready thing about it. So yeah, it was good. It was um, the that time we had a real buzz on and enjoyed doing it. And that's the second part of my interview with Ivor Perry from Easter House, talking about the interesting but slightly tricky and sometimes murky world that is record labels. Anyway, David Eastall, the C86 show. I think we'll play another track again from Contenders. I know I'm so predictable. But anyway, I think we should play um, something that he just mentioned there. This is Inspiration. I know. 
do check out that production because, like I said, it has been sort of remastered slightly or remixed to uh, make it even sound better than the original back in the day. Anyway, take it away. Life to a 
And that's another track from Easterhouse, and that's inspiration taken from their 1986 album, Contenders. This is David Eastall. And as I said earlier, and hopefully you were paying attention, I think I said it earlier, though with age you sometimes get a bit confused, but Cherry Red Records last year um, released quite a lot of material. Um, there was a Liverpool collection, which was a five-CD box set, but uh, there was also a Manchester one, which was a seven-CD box set collection that featured, obviously, Easterhouse, but also bands like the Buzzcocks. Uh, the full um, Dorothy column and much much more so if you want to know that about that or you might already have it because it came out last year do check it out you can go to Cherry Red Records or just google it and you will find it it's uh, yes called Manchester North of England and it's seven CDs so ideal time at this uh, this festive period anyway this is the next part of my interview with Ivor Perry from the band where we were talking about the band um, the lineup changes and all that exciting malarkey which always happens and it always seems to be around the world of drummers I know I wonder why anyway Ivor take it basically away. it started off with uh, before we played with the Smith we had a drummer I sacked him just before the gig with the Smith because he couldn't keep time and he was a drunkard so basically we had a drum machine for a while and then we got another drummer who could keep time and that was it we had a stable lineup until we went to play with the smiths in scotland on tour and then i added another guitar player uh which made us sound more like uh it was really funny to watch it when we did the sound check in glasgow or somewhere morrissey and johnny marr was sat in the in the in the big hall in glasgow and we were on stage and he'd never heard our second guitar player and you could see his face fall because we sounded like the MC5. You know, man, all of a sudden we sounded like fucking loud because we had a big... Cause I, before that, it was the same lineup, one guitar, bass and drums, which makes for a kind of spidery post-punk kind of sound, doesn't it? Which the Smiths do have live as well, if you watch live kind of things. Obviously, we were a little bit more simple and aggressive. But once we added the other guitar player, it could stretch out. So I remember them watching us. And quite soon afterwards, my friend Craig, Craig Gannon, joined the Smiths. So I think he was a bit jealous because we had two guitars. Yes. Fucking loud, isn't that man? So then, then as you you then got the tricky second album, and obviously you mentioned earlier the joy that um, in about '87, when the party, the indie party, was starting to get a little bit frail, there was ecstasy in the scene, and then people were starting. So to let, so let me describe that moment to you. We're playing in the end of 1986 in in Manchester in Rafters, a big gig for us. It's completely full, about five or six hundred people. And we're being supported by Happy Mondays. And I noted when I came in that there was like 50, 40 people crowding around the stage all doing this funny dance. And Sean Ryder was, and Bez were handing out pills to them. And I just went straight away. Things are going to change. You could see this band. It was like the fall trying to play Fly in the Family Stone. Do you know what I mean? It was a weird mixture of funk and the fall. It's the only way I describe it. That's the early Happy Mondays. I love Happy Mondays. First album that kind of period, I think they were amazing. And I saw them play with us. Yeah, and you knew that indie music, the way we were doing it, had had its day. You just, you just went, yeah, move over, the next thing's going to happen. Yes. God, that was quite a, that was quite a, a moment, wasn't it? Seeing, being there when you saw that kind of happening. So yeah, then, but it, was, it wasn't to us, because obviously I'm going to be honest, then, then I started taking ecstasy, and, uh, and, and we were like, you know, it became a thing, like the Stone Roses were the same. There were a bunch of rockers with goth leather pants and eyeliner on. You shared a room with us. We used to share a room with Stone Roses. And they took their ease. And next minute, you've got, obviously, I Am The Resurrection. Yes. Well, and also, the one band that did also go for it was from Scotland. That was the Soup Dragons, who went from yes. very, very, very indie to suddenly, like, my God, you just got this kind of um, anthem, dance anthem. And I suppose, yes, 
They, 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 they definitely... So we realised that, yeah, so I did that later on with a band called Parchment in about 1991 or two. If you look it up, I had, um, a, 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 I was on XL, you know, XL, the famous label with the Prodigy and the Home People. Yes. I got signed to them and I had a single, it's on YouTube, look it up, it's called Parchment Ride, but it sold about 10,000 and did pretty well. Yes. So but it what... was indie dance. If you hear it, it's indie dance pop, it's the guitar, you know, it's just baggy music, you know, done my way, but it's that kind of music. It's a good laugh. But we're all on E, so we all started to hear the same things. <laughs> God, what a time. I get... Did you do a Glastonbury at that time? Because I can remember sort of doing some of those Glastonbury's with all these kind of, uh, I suppose, northerners with their big flare trousers kind of, you know, flopping around in the mud. No, I'm not a big fan of all that kind of thing. I did go to Spike Island, which is one of the worst gigs. It's been written about as like some kind of seminal event in history. But it was actually a ridiculously horror film of the of a day of performance. And, and the Stone Roses were so bad. The wind was blowing against them, so it blew the sound away from the amplifiers. So you could actually hear the raw amplifiers instead of the mixed-up sound. And, you know, Ian is Ian, but he can't sing. That guy <laughs> cannot sing. And it sounded like somebody was, like, torturing a pig over some kind of prog rock, over some bad prog rock indeed and we don't like bad prog rock anyway that was the third part of my interview with Ivel Perry from Easter House I realised that time is ticking on so I think we'll play one more track uh, before the end of the show and then a bit more in the interview and then I'll have to say goodbye but anyway this is another track by, by the band from the album Contenders this is Johnny when going the road to Wexford Town hero when going the road to Exford Town, he rode. I saw a man of great renown. He was dressed in a suit of khaki brown. He loved me once, but now did frown. Johnny, I hardly knew you. With drums and guns to Exford Town, he rode. With drums and guns to Exford Town, he rode. With drums and guns to Exford Town, the English lost it. Oh yeah, our darling dear looks so queer, Johnny. I hardly knew Oh, where is a bill that looks so fair, hero? Oh, where is your promise bill so fair, hero? In which my debts I'm supposed to share, you drove them forth and did not guess.
That was an abrupt ending, but that was Issa has on a track called Johnny. This is going to be the um, next part of my interview with Ivor Perry from Easter House, where we talk about what happens or what happened after that first album and before the second. This was his reply. Ivor, take it away. No, what happened? What happened? We we did two American tours, and on the second one, mm. uh, me and Andrew were falling out quite badly about the direction of the group, and basically, um, I left in December 1986 uh, and just walked out of the group and just went, I don't want to do it with you anymore. It's, it's too painful. We used to fight physically and so forth. It's like it's like the Gallagher brothers, one year apart. And it was, and it was, um, it, it, I, I, to be honest, I never really enjoyed a lot of that period because we were um, regimented. Andrew wanted success at any terms. When you hear the next record, Waiting for the Redbird, it's this plastic formula and the music and Andrew was desperate for us to move that way and I wasn't but the other thing it made him quite conservative so for example we played the same set for a year because he wouldn't introduce new songs because we knew that the set we played went down well so he was scared of changing it because you know it, it was tried and tested and he just saw himself moving up and once we went to America I think he saw himself as going you know having a chance to have a better career so when he did Waiting for the Redbird the track on it come out fighting ended up being picked up by a baseball team and actually entered the top Billboard 100, I think, for a tiny bit. Yes, dear me. I know, that was their moment, their Chumbawamba moment, really, wasn't it? Um, I get knocked down. I was outstanding by then. So if you read the internet, you'll see that people go, the second album is A, not as rated as the first one in any way, and B, is, is obviously radically different sounding. So I was an indie guitar player, and the first record contenders is an indie guitar record the second one is some processed american you know i'm going to try and get a hit in the charts kind of thing yes well well i was i was going to say the one thing that i did notice apart from if bands try to do the second album or third possibly if the first one was quite a quickie um if anybody ever did america most bands came back and that was the end really that, that america would often finish a band and i didn't I, again i had not realized that this was such a predictable kind of narrative of a of any band apart from probably a couple yes. no totally yeah young i think it's just young people you know because remember everyone's pretty young and you have a lot of dreams and things invested in it but you also have integrity and it's that kind of balance between them two things and it starts to wear you down the contradictions between what you want to do and achieve and and the mundanity of it it's quite mundane to sit there and just turn up and endlessly repeat what you do like a robot like a machine and it's not you know it's not it's not for me i think i realized it wasn't for me to be a, a live touring musician plus also because of that you get into drinking and things that are bad for your health and bad for your behavior yeah. so, so so i realized i wasn't well suited to being on the road a lot for example yeah, I think, uh, yes, I know that. I don't, yes, the age thing plus, you know, like just. Well, I was dead young, no, I was dead young. I, was tw- I just was a fucking rampant alcoholic when I was 24. <laughs> 
Yes, this is quite tricky, isn't it? But did you also, because obviously the Smiths and that, that kind of mention of Morrissey and the fact that you went round to his house and chatted to him, did you sort of keep sort of bumping into each other as you sort of weaved through? No, the we were friends. We were, we, were, we were strong friends. When I met him, we, we formed a strong friendship. I used to go around his house all the time. I watched him come up from, you know, from the beginning. Of, and, he, and he liked having people around him who were from a local thing because he never felt like he quite fitted in being quite a strange character. So he used to quiz me about the comings and goings of, of the local, you know, <laughs> environment in which he was. And, and and he was a very intelligent guy. He turned me on to feminism. He turned me on to good political writing. He gave me Last Exit to Brooklyn by Hubert Selby. He gave me The Female Unit by Jermaine Greer, you know. So he gave me some great books. And he supported us all the time. He came to gigs. You know, he said nice things about us. He'd give us support gigs. All of that. So it was, you know, it was a really strong friendship with him. I really, I really liked him. It fell up. You know, I joined and played with Johnny Marr. Do you know that? No. You must I, know this. Well, I know there is this kind of, um, I don't know, because trying to to catch stuff on the internet, there was this kind of thing that you'd gone to a session and it hadn't gone terribly well after Johnny had left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, imagine. That, so here's what happened: Johnny Marr and and um, uh, Morrissey split up or had this disagreement. So all of a sudden, I got a phone call from Jeff Travis in early '97. I'd left. I'd left the Easter House. I had a new band called The Cradle, and The Cradle had a number twelve hit called "It's Too High" in about April '97 in the independent charts. And that was on Roof Trade. And then I got a phone call from Jeff Travis going, "Morrissey wants um, to hear tunes from you because he's trying to find a new guitar player to replace Johnny." And I went, "That's a bad idea." The Smith to the Smith, you know, you can't you can't kick Johnny Marr out of the Smith. It's like kicking Paul McCartney out of the fucking Beatles, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? It ain't going to work. So basically, I got insane pressure on me to do it. So I sent him a tape of some music, and he, I went down to see him in London, and he went, we'll do these two tunes, one which ended up being Bengalian platforms, which I wasn't too keen on the words on anyway. And uh, we did two sessions, not one. And, he, and on the second one, it was just, you know, it's a weird thing. Stephen Street produced it. He produced Blur and, you know, The Smith and all that. Me and him didn't get on because he'd produced a record for Easter House that didn't come out because I didn't like the sound of it. He made us sound like the police, so which I didn't want. I didn't, sorry, I didn't want to sound like the police, so I just went, no, we're not releasing it. So when I went in, you know, Stephen Street wrote tunes in Morrissey after on Viva Hey. He had an agenda, I believe, to, you know, so me and him didn't get on and, he, and it was a strange atmosphere, so we... I had to teach the band to play the songs. It was quite different. I kept saying to Morrissey, you know, this is not the Smiths. You have to make, you know, make it clear to people that I'm not trying to be Johnny Marr and I'm not trying to copy what he does. We'd, and the songs that we did were my tunes. But it was too much of a break for him. You know, he shouldn't have done it. It was the wrong move. And it was the wrong move for me. I got promised quite a lot of money that I didn't get. And basically, I think it sort of um, really pissed me off and, and put me in a bit of a downer. So I packed in music for a bit because it was quite upset. Yeah. The whole thing yeah. turned out, yeah. And did you kind of, as with most things, which get a bit charged and difficult in the moment, did you ever get that kind of cleared up with Morrissey later on? No, he he, he wrote to me. I've got lots of letters from him where he apologised, but I don't think I was in a frame of mind at the time to um, to accept it. So I just went like, fuck you, basically. You know, and I'm like, I'm not keen. It, it turned out bad, so I, I didn't, you know, it was just a bad time, I didn't enjoy it. And I was press-ganged into it, people have to understand, you know, I didn't do it to advance myself. I did it because I thought it would be great to play with somebody with that talent, and that's, because Morris is, you know, 
when he's on, he's on. He's a fantastic lyricist and everything. And so it was a, it was a golden opportunity. It didn't work out, fair play, but it cost me a bit in the end, you know what I mean? Yes. Because, for example, some people go, well, you're involved in the splitting up of one of the most iconic bands of all time, blah, blah, blah. I think that sort of affected me a bit. It didn't affect me at the time because I sort of stepped out of the music world. But but later on, I, I realised from talking to people and friends I've got, you know, it, it, like Vinnie Riley replaced me in the in, and Vinnie's a friend of mine, I know Vinnie. And um, he didn't like working with Morrissey either, or Stephen Street in the end. He said it was a horror film. But basically, uh, it, it, yeah, it was a quite you know, sad incident. It just fucked me off and made me very upset. So I packed in music for a while. Yes. And, did you and then you... I did Parchment and then got myself a big record deal with XL. Like I said, look it up, Parchment Ride on um, YouTube. Uh, and all my tunes are available on like, iTunes. And, and then I, I, got, I had two records released. In 20, for the Parchment Band that did in the 90s, it were released digitally in 2014 by Beggar's Banquet. And that was probably the third or fourth part of the interview I had with Ivor Perry from Easter House and various other indie bands. But I think we need more music and then a bit more chat. Anyway, this is another track by Easter House. This is titled Confrontation. <laughs>
And that's Easter House with a track titled Confrontation. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. If you want, want to contact me for various reasons, I don't know why, but um, you can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. Also, if you want to hear any other shows that I've done, um, C86 Shows, because each week I have a special guest, so it's kind of very exciting if you want to track down or hear a band from that golden decade. Um, you can find it either on Spotify, iTunes or Mixcloud. Just go to at C86 Show or C86 Show and uh, you should hopefully be able to locate it all very easily like I said. Anyway, this is going to be another part of the interview I had with uh, Ivor Perry from the band where I was talking about the passing of time and whether friendships um, were able to be sort of um, sorted out or uh, at least slightly healed, he says, in a slightly new age well way. Anyway, Ivor, take it away. No, no, it's, it's a funny one. I always feel it's been left in a weird place, you know what I mean? But then Morris's behaviour lately, obviously, you know, makes me less inclined to even reach out if, even if I wanted to, because uh, I've got lots of personal things from him, signed records, millions of personal letters, you know, um, um, the friendship was deep. And so, you know, it was it's quite sad. But now when I see him, I, he seems like some weird, demented, ranting little Inglander, you know what I mean? Completely, you know, removed from the day-to-day world of the people that he would affect with his brilliant music. And, and you know, obviously he's, he's supporting Britain first, he's supporting Brexit, you know what I mean? He seems to say nice things about Farage and people. Fuck knows what's up with his head, but he seems to have turned into some mad ranting Enoch Powell kind of character. Yes, I have to say, having spent so much of my life listening to Morrissey and especially, well, the Smith, it was more the Smiths than Morrissey, really, his solo life. Though I, you know, you know, I did sort of catch it a little bit. There late. is some good ones. The Ringleader of the of the Tormentors is a good album. Uh, Irish Blood, English Heart is a fantastic single. Yes, but even Spend the Day in Bed, his last one wasn't that bad. No, but it's kind of, you know, try having defended him and thinking, you know, a lot of what he said was great back in the 80s and thinking it was brilliant about being the vegetarian and meat and all that. It's yeah, just yeah. kind of the last couple of years has been really like, oh, my God, please don't say anything. It's else. hard to defend, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard to defend. <laughs> so it's, 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 a lot of young people don't see him in the light that we see him. You know, they see obviously this reactionary kind of person. Yeah. Why do you him and so forth? And um uh, saying that though, play Johnny Mars' latest records. You know they're, they're boring as fuck. You know what I mean? I don't. He just hasn't got the. There's a weird thing with bands, isn't there? Which is the truth with me and Andrew, and Easter House. I've never got a rock group that sounded so together. And obviously, iconically, Smith are the iconic band. Yes. Well, it's it, so Johnny Marr on, on well, his own. Well, Johnny Marr's solo album. You're not the same. Get the other. Well, the solo albums of Johnny Marr have, have like, if, if someone had just played that and hadn't told me who it was and anything, I'd have given it 30 seconds and gone, yeah, well, that's pretty, you know, it's like a pub rock band almost, you know, it's like... Well, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's neat, it's well played, it's together, but he hasn't, the magic isn't there, it's like, the you know, R.E.M. or whatever, you cannot have these core people, there's something about it, we have the singing and the guitar, which makes the framework on which the band sit and the ethos, and without that... They, they become less. It's funny. It's, I understand how Morrissey doesn't want to go back and revisit the Smith because he's got, you know, most of his heritage is what he did after the Smith, isn't it? You know, basically. But he's condemned to be stuck in that world where yes. he was, um, you know, obviously always tied 
that time. So look, after you know, you're you're you know the band, you know, going on into the mid noughties you the band reformed again. Was were you part of that? No, it's a funny one. It's a mad story. Andrew reformed. I lived in Ireland. I moved to Ireland um, in the mid nineties because uh, we're Irish. So I just I moved back there and got a job. Um, like lots of people who of friends in the we the internet came up and we changed the internet so i sort of got into being an internet kind of person so basically i uh, went over to do an arts kind of internet thing dead early in the in the, the 90s and andrew we formed with andy rock dave verner um, i can't remember else he had uh, his other mate steve an old friend of mine on guitar and did a gig one-off gig i believe but then we formed me and andrew again and had a group called carlos for a while so we tried to get together in the mid 90s and uh, so it's me and Andrew and two other people. I'll send you some links to some bits of music if you give me a Facebook. I've got your Facebook. I'll send it on Facebook. Basically, uh, uh, so we were like a supercharged version of Easter House with different bass and drums. I really like it. I think what we did, some of it was great. Um, and we had a manager in that. But we couldn't, once again, resolve our differences. So we ended up splitting up again, sadly. So, you know, it, it was a... I tried to get, we tried to get, so Andrew reformed, he tried to do it, then me and him reformed, and we tried to do it my way, which is a much more sonically aggressive, interesting kind of, it's like Easter House had grown up and got into bigger noise, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's um, it's kind of interesting, because in that time though, going back to the 80s, you must have really developed yourself as a guitar player. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things that was obviously satisfying is that people consider me to be a good player. I do like it. I'm actually now a, a really good player. I've got, a, I've got, a, I'll send you another group. Do you, have you heard of my group, Big Flower? No. I have a, an instrumental psychedelic rock group in Liverpool called Big Flower. I'll send you a link to it. Um, and it's completely different from Easter House. It's instrumental. It's uh, far stretch out music, like free jazz I like quite advanced music. One of the things that's funny about Easter House is it pigeonholes me in a certain indie style, but generally I'm quite wide, you know, I've got, I have wide tastes and I like quite far out music, more far out than Easter House sound. The funny thing about Easter House was just that's how me and Andrew sounded together. It just made sense to make them kind of tunes. But on my own, I would tend to make things that are a bit more stretched out and different. Yeah. And psychedelic to it in a, in a modern sense. So not psychedelic with, you know, drawing back to 60s references, but psychedelic to do like mind expanding kind of explorations of sound and things. So, yes. so I've got, yes, yeah, so, so, so you were saying about being a good guitar player. So I still play. I picked it up again two years ago and I'm like having a really, really good time playing and having this really good. And I've got like 3000 followers and, you know, I don't do it for a living because you can't make, as you said, you can't make any money out of it. So basically, I just do it for you know mental health and, and the joy of doing it. Yeah, because the one thing I've the other thing that a lot of bands kind of completely tripped up on is the kind of ownership of music and publishing. How did you deal with that one with Easter House? Because it's um, yes, it's often one that a lot of people go well actually. Yeah, because we you get to an age, you get into your 50s and you think, God, it would be really nice to archive all the music we ever did and get all the bits and pieces from different sessions, whether it was, um, I don't know, Richard Skinner, Janice Long, John Peel and all the B-sides and flexi-discs and stick it all together, make some nice notes in a booklet and say, that's our work. And um, yeah. and uh, so did you ever manage to do that with Easter House? No, no, there's, there's bits online because I've got your... Um... 
your um, uh, your Facebook Messenger, I can pop you over a couple of things later this evening. But basically, one thing, you know the Easter House album? Yes. Did you hear it on album or CD? Did you hear it on vinyl or did you hear it on CD? CD. Right, CD is a copy of the vinyl, basically. Somebody just recorded the vinyl and it's, and it's not representative of how that thing should sound. Here's an amazing story. Some American producer guy, for some reason, liked Easter House. So he went and got Pro Tools and cleaned up the sound of the raw CD files and it's fucking amazing. He made the record sound like it should. And I will send you a link to it later on this evening, like a Dropbox. And if you hear our album, you hear the CD that you've got from Rough Trade. And then you hear the thing I'll send you. It's like somebody is, give it a, a power wash. <laughs> you know what I mean? And bright, you can, it's like you've got a muddy windscreen on your car. Somebody's like clean the windscreen. That's what the record sounds like. So this guy of his own back and of his own volition just sat there and just completely did all this work and and edited in together. You know what I mean? A brand new version of the of the what he considered to be his his definitive version of the album. And this is like thirty odd years later, and this guy still felt you know inclined to do it. Some American guy. That is amazing. I mean, so so basically, the kind of the master cassettes or tapes are just laying in a sort of record company somewhere, probably in London. Yeah, but there's bits online that I'll send you really early demos um, that you'll probably, if you like Easter House, when we were, go- you know, really early, yeah, good things. There's quite. So I'll put some of it online. It's some of it's on SoundCloud, some of it's in various bits. You know, <laughs> I'll, I'll ping it over. But I've, there's no definitive uh, kind of thing. I only thought about Easter House, like you said, when Cherry Red got in touch with me last year because Cherry Red used to distribute our record nice. and then they just, and then they stopped distributing it. So I was like going, oh, well, that's done. Nobody wants it anymore. You know, that kind of like slightly sad feeling going, oh, God, it's not even, you can't even buy these sales records anymore. But um, but when they released us on that compilation, it just made me think about it again quite fun. Yes. And what would, what would you, because obviously, you've, you know, it's been an amazing story sort of like from that early 80s right through to now I mean what would you kind of say to your an 18 year old self starting out in music I'd go uh, what would I say I'd go uh, don't don't be such a sucker don't um, yeah don't you know have value in what you do and don't don't be such um, you know um like the way I got talked into doing the Smith thing, I never get talked into anything. I'm quite strong-willed and do what I want. And basically, I felt I could let myself down. Do you know what I mean? So I would. it, it was probably that weird thing that, you know, going, maybe I could be famous or something. Because I know I'm talented. I know I can play. I can write songs. But that isn't for everyone. And when I, like, read reviews of Easter House that some people put up for it and how much the music has moved people over the years, I'll go... You know that's enough. That's what you should settle for. And you know, if I knew that now, I would have probably been a more uncompromising slightly, maybe, about some of the things that we would have done and and some of the approaches we were took. Instead of like going in and doing a record with Jimmy Miller and going, well, because he's done it, it has to be released. But I don't really like the sound of it. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Now I'd go, well, fuck it, I'm not having it. But that's what I say to me, 18 year old. So stick with what's with what you know and have the courage of your convictions 
And that is the last part of my interview with Ivor Perry, who was a one-time member of Easter House. Anyway, that is the end of the show. Thank you ever so much for listening. Um, tune in next week and I'll have another special guest. But I'll leave you with another track by Easter House. I know, surprise. This is titled Live Like This. Thank you.